Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. In this episode, I'm joined by Marco Polo. Yes, that is his real name. And yes, he is the former editor of Canadian Architect. Yes, he's also our graduate program director for the Masters of Architecture program at Ryerson Department of Architectural Science. And I'd like to think that uh, back in the old days, he was only two doors down from me. So I used to think that I had one of the preeminent names in Canadian architecture just down the corridor from me, but I've hyped him enough. Marco, welcome and care to introduce yourself and how you got to where you are now. Okay, uh, thanks Vince for inviting me. Um, how I got to where I am now? Well, you live long enough, you get to do stuff. Um, so, uh, originally from Vancouver, um, studied at the University of British Columbia. I did uh, an undergraduate degree in the history of art and architecture, followed by my professional degree in architecture. And right upon graduation, I moved to Toronto because um, at that time, which was the mid-1980s, um, Vancouver was in one of its uh, bust cycles, um, quite a dramatic kind of economic crash that happened just before Expo 86. And so a lot of architects who had been working on Expo 86 were being let go as all those projects were coming to an end. And so there was a huge glut of architects in Vancouver and very little work. Um, so I came out to Toronto where there was a ton of work. Um, I hit the streets literally one day with my portfolio and, and just was kind of cold calling door to door. And by the end of the first morning, I had job offers. So that's, that was the climate in Toronto wow. at that time. So I, I moved over here thinking I'd be here for a couple of years, and it's now been 35 years. Yeah. Sorry, I, go ahead, because I just wanted to say, like, could you name the firms and the, some of the projects that the students might know? Um, they might know some. Uh, the first office I worked for was very small. It was just two partners and myself. Uh, they were called Schefter and McCallum. And basically, as is typical for an office of that size, we basically did residential work. Um, after a couple of years, I moved on to Montgomery and Sison, which mm -hmm. is probably more familiar to people. They're a pretty mm -hmm. substantial firm here that does a lot of institutional work. And um, I was there for nine years. And during that time, I worked mostly on either healthcare projects, long-term care, or libraries. Mm -hmm. um, one project that people might know, depending on where they live in the city, is the Vaughan uh, Bathurst Clark Library in Vaughan. Um, and that was a project that I was one of the design architects for. It won a Canadian Architect Award. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then um, after that, I started teaching uh, part-time at University of Toronto and I was uh, working part-time at Canadian Architect. So I'd always been interested in architectural writing. Uh, while I was in practice, I did quite a bit of writing, um, mostly book reviews and then a few building reviews. I, uh, I moved on to Canadian Architect. Um, I was editor there for six years. And when I left Canadian Architect, I started teaching full-time at Ryerson. Actually, my first year at Ryerson, I was still editing Canadian Architect. So I had one year of overlap. And that was a pretty crazy year. <laughs> um, and then I, I left the magazine and have been teaching full time. Um, I, what is it now? 18 years at Ryerson. Oh my God. I think yeah. uh, that, that just, just to put things in perspective, a lot of our first years are younger than your tenure at Ryerson. Thanks, Vince. That makes me feel really young and fresh. No problem, buddy. Uh, so I think uh, just let's talk about the teaching for a second, because sure. what did you start teaching at U of T? Uh, design studio. Um, and this is in the old program um, when it was a five-year Bachelor of Architecture. 
And at that time, there were very, very few tenured faculty uh, in, the, in the school there. Mm-hmm. I think there were like six or seven t- full-time faculty and about 70 sessionals. Um, and a lot mm-hmm. of the studios were actually run by sessional instructors. It was a very, very different kind of environment from what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I taught mostly in the first and second year. And, and I have to say, I guess that, that's kind of where I started to learn how to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the people I taught with who was a huge influence on me in terms of how I thought about teaching was Barry Sampson. No way. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so ju- we just we just came off of a couple of uh, interviews with people that have worked at that office. So sure, that's, yeah. it's just rather serendipitous that you know we're getting multiple episodes with oh, you know, yeah, well, BSN. You know, yep. Huge, hugely influential office in terms of um, certainly in terms of teaching. You look at both George and Barry, mm-hmm. um, and obviously you know not a not a huge office, but uh, the projects that they've produced over the years very significant. So can you tell me, though, what, what prompted you to go into the teaching route? Like, I mean, you're talking about how you learned to become a, you know, you, a right. prof, but what, what's that, what made you say, look, uh, you know, I got too much time on my hands doing architecture. <laughs> let's, go, let's go and teach. It certainly wasn't having too much time on my hands. It was more, I think, a question of looking to satisfy areas of interest that were very difficult to satisfy in practice. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people uh, discover, and, you know, some of us str- struggle with, is that practice has a very different set of demands and rigors than does um, architecture school, of course. It's Mm -hmm. only natural. Uh, Those of us who are maybe more inclined to take an interest in architecture theory and criticism sometimes find that it's very hard to satisfy those interests in practice because it just has so many other demands that need to be addressed. Um, And so that's one of the reasons that I continued to uh, write about architecture while I was practicing. Mm -hmm. uh, And one of the things that attracted me to teaching uh, was that it was a it was a more intensive engagement with the ideas of architecture as opposed to the production of architecture. And I would say that even in an office like Montgomery and Sison, which I have to say I you know I think was an excellent office and really had a pretty ambitious um, uh, uh, relationship to architecture in terms of quality and thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're dealing with uh, you know just trying to meet deadlines and meet budgets and you know uh, produce. Uh, tender documents and so forth, it's, it's easy to lose that connection to the, the, the more kind of cerebral and, and, uh, and theoretical side of architecture. Well, I was going to say, let's not kid ourselves, because you just told me that you're teaching first and second year. I'm not sure what level of cerebral you're, you're talking about at that point in time. But, it's still but, ideas. It's still ideas, you know? Um, okay. And, and it was, uh, yeah, I, I would say that regardless of the level that we teach at, when you're teaching, you, you have to be thinking about architecture in a particular way to impart that to students, to start to get them, even in the very, very beginnings of their education, to understand that architecture is not just a practical pursuit, but it is a cultural pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, in, in, you could say that, in fact, uh, that's more important in first year than anywhere else, because you've got to get people to start to understand that what they're doing has, has meaning way beyond the, the particular object or assembly that they're working on. Okay, so let's just take a step back because you, you were just commenting that you've taught for 18 years. So I was talking about first and second year, but you know, you're, you obviously have taught pretty much every year from what I gather. Uh, in, in yeah, Ryerson, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that having seen all that, like you've taught everything from studios to certainly a lot of the theory courses, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the comments that we always get every week, I get an email or so saying, you know, why do I need to study about old 
dead people. And, you know, why do I memorize the five points of architecture from this guy or the 10 lamps, 10 books, whatever? Uh, why, why would, you know, as a person who used to edit Canadian Architect, who's just told me there's a cerebral dimension from day one, mm -hmm. tell, help, me, help me tell a student the right answer to, to why they should be studying this stuff. Okay, well, first of all, I would say that if someone is actually asking them to memorize that stuff, boy, that's not useful. Um, what's more interesting is... <laughs> Hey, we're talking about high school kid, you know, the first years, that's yeah. the way they understand it, right? Okay, fair enough. But, but what's really important isn't, what they, isn't that they memorize this stuff. Of course, that's, that's a waste of time. What's important is that they understand that they are operating within a tradition and a discipline that has very deep roots. And everything that we do today has some foundation in previous work, previous ideas. Um, first of all, I guess, the, so the easiest way to answer that is to say that, you know, nothing you think of has not been thought of before by someone else. Um, and has been addressed and, and experimented with and, and chewed over a hundred million times in the history mm -hmm. of architecture. Okay. And the more we immerse ourselves in the discipline, the traditions of the discipline, understanding where these ideas come from, the better equipped we are to make decisions in our own context. If we just sort of accept historical work without trying to understand it, we just say, okay, architecture's done this way because we've always done it this way. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, that's not a very helpful uh, uh, sort of way of looking at the world. Uh, one of the reasons I find history so interesting is, is precisely that. I mean, we see, we see history repeating itself. Mm -hmm. We see ideas that uh, sort of come in and out of fashion and they kind of happen cyclically. Um, I find it really interesting right now. I'm talking to students who are embarking on their thesis. A lot of them seem to be very interested in issues of architectural meaning, students mm -hmm. are reading semiotics again. Mm -hmm. And you know, for them, it's entirely new. And I remember when I was a student, semiotics was a big thing, you know, 40 years ago. Is it um, actually and, pronounced semiotics? I always thought of semiotics. Well, you... Okay, I, I listened. I, I've, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, it's kind of interesting to me because stuff that, that kind of was, was very significant when I was a student and then seemed to disappear off the radar is now coming back. And I think that these things do happen. There is a kind of cyclical nature to ideas. And obviously we think about them differently now than we did 40 years ago, mm -hmm. but there's still foundational, there's still foundational knowledge there that is worth mining. Um, sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, so with that in mind, then we also see a lot of um, students going into, you know, you, you, you raised it, so I might as well jump into that. As the program director, uh, for the Masters of Architecture, um, you, I think you understand that to get a master's degree, could, can you just explain to us the notion of what a master's degree in architecture, because a lot of students think, you know, you come into from high school, I do my undergrad in architecture, congratulations, I'm an architect, right? And, and I think you got to help me out here and explain to people the, you know, we talked about examination and the experience components in, in other podcast episodes, but I think at this point, let's talk about the education standpoint from your perspective. So, in Canada in 2020, and this has been the case for getting close to 20 years now, if not more, um, the minimum uh, degree requirement to become a professionally licensed architect is the Master of Architecture. Historically, excuse me, when I say historically, I would say for, for much of the 20th century, the standard degree of practice was the Bachelor of Architecture, which in most cases was offered as a five-year degree. So mm -hmm. not your typical four-year bachelor, it was a five-year degree. 
as I said, about 20 years ago, in, certainly in Canada, um, all the schools transitioned to offer a Master of Architecture as a professional degree. In most cases, as is the case with Ryerson, the professional degree or the, the two-year master's degree follows a four-year undergraduate degree. So mm -hmm. the, the total time invested in education is now six years as opposed to the old five. So it's mm -hmm. not an enormous inflation as had sometimes been made out to be. It's one additional year in most cases. Mm -hmm. The four years plus two years is, is the standard at let me think for a second at uh, us uh, eight of the 11 schools of architecture in, uh, of the 11 accredited school. Actually, it's, what? we're now at 12. 12 Laurentian. Yeah. So it's actually nine, nine out of 12. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. I mean, Laurentian just came on board as, as a, as an accredited program with their masters up and running. Mm -hmm. So, so we're now at nine out of 12. So, you know, the majority clearly 75% of the schools are for the four plus two. There are three schools, which are UBC, uh, Calgary and University of Toronto, mm -hmm. which offer a professional master's degree that occurs entirely at the graduate level. So you can, you can enter the program with any academic background, a, a, a bachelor's degree in anything will get you in from an academic point of view, obviously you need the portfolio as well. Right. And those programs uh, vary between three and four years in duration. Mm -hmm. So instead of, instead of six years of, of architectural education, you do four because it assumes that all your other general education, which we also have to cover in the six years, have already been covered in your undergrad, right? right? So that's kind of the, the breakdown there. Different schools have different cultures, and so they're not all identical. Um, and I would say that in our case, there's quite a distinct flavor between the undergraduate and the graduate programs. What, what do you mean? So the, our undergraduate program, I think is safe to say, is the most technically oriented program in Canada. Um, and so the, the degree of technical instruction in our undergraduate is very substantial. Um, what is less substantial maybe in our program than you would find in maybe some other programs is, is more of the kind of theoretical and cultural uh, aspect of the education. Mm -hmm. So our, our program, uh, which really builds on the, on the history of the school, right, as we started out as a, as a technical institute, mm -hmm. um, the... The, the people who finish our undergraduate program are fully prepared to function in an architectural office. So they know how to, they know how to design buildings. They know how to put together a set of drawings. They understand technical detailing. They understand construction probably better than the graduates of most other undergraduate programs. Mm -hmm. Because that is such a strong aspect of our undergraduate, we don't really address that directly in the graduate program. So in the graduate program, we don't have any any te formal technical instruction. We don't have courses and structures. We don't have courses in HVAC. That's already been, uh, been addressed in the undergraduate program. Mm -hmm. So the emphasis in the graduate program is much more on sort of conceptual and theoretical and quite often social and political aspects of architecture. So there are obviously, as is true of most grad programs, fewer courses in the program than there would be in the undergrad. Right. There's, a, there's a greater emphasis on studios. So studio makes up a larger proportion of the program. So for example, the, you know, the undergraduate studios are nine hours uh -huh. um, per week. The grad studios are 12. Uh -huh. And because in any given semester, you have one studio plus two courses in the grad program, you can see how the proportion of, of time in the grad program is, is geared much more to the studio. Yep. Um, and then in addition to the studio, we offer seminars. And the seminars are, again, primarily focused on 
theoretical issues, with the exception of the practice seminar, which deals entirely with uh, you know, professional practice issues. Um, and uh, the students take that in their final semester of second year in the master's program. So I wanted to um, give you an opportunity to talk about the grad program a little bit more, Marco, because um, you know, you've done a really good job explaining even teaching me a little bit there. I, didn't, I, I forgot about the, there was just three that were the exceptions, but can you talk about the notion of master's thesis? Because mm-hmm. I'm, get, I'm getting a couple of questions uh, as of late and I knew that I was gonna be able to snag you. So I kind of told a couple of students and the question they had was, you know, we see a lot of master's programs in Canada withdrawing from doing, having students do a thesis, mm-hmm. right? So can yeah. you tell us what a thesis in architecture would ideally be? And then why would you suspect that uh, other places are retracting from it? And mm-hmm. what, why we still do one? <clears throat> why other places are retracting from it? Uh, that's a good question because I think that each, each school has its own kind of logic. Uh, but I would say that for any of us, you know, who are engaged in the thesis, it's, it's tough. It's hard work. It's hard work for the students. It's hard work mm-hmm. for the faculty. Um, why do we still value it, I would say, is because, well, for a couple of reasons. One is that I think we, we take the view that uh, design research is becoming an increasingly important part of how architects think, not just in ac- the academic context, but also in practice. Mm-hmm. And that if you don't do a, a thesis, then essentially you're doing more studios and, and you're kind of continuing to develop a skill set that is much more kind of traditional in terms of what the architect is able to do, which is geared again almost almost entirely to the design of buildings. Our, our attitude is that increasingly architects are being called upon to do things that are well beyond the, the traditional scope, mm-hmm. which would be, of course, the design of buildings. Um, and, and the recognition that research is becoming, as I said, already more important. And the thesis is really an opportunity for the students to do some in-depth research. And most importantly, to do design research, which is a different kind of modality than you would find in in other kinds of of graduate disciplines, which are largely, you know, when we think of of graduate research, we either, you know, in in the kind of humanities, you rely heavily on literature research. Mm In the social sciences, um, you rely heavily on uh, sort of uh, data collection, um, you know, interviews, uh, demographic studies, all the mm-hmm. kinds of stuff that we understand in the kind of statistical sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, in science and engineering, you're dealing much more with, with you know, hard physical research, uh, experimentation, um, uh, you know, testing new theories and materials, et cetera, et cetera. Design research is a, is a way of using design as an investigative tool to raise interesting questions about the future of architecture, certainly, but also the relationship of architecture to other aspects of, of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our program, students set their own research agenda. They identify their own uh, research area of interest. They are then, um, with the assistance of faculty, are to find uh, a suitable supervisor that can help them with with their area of inquiry. In right. some cases, they may have to adjust that area of inquiry. And in, in, you know, not all, not every kind of uh, uh, interest that students bring to us is an area that someone on our faculty necessarily has expertise in. Mm-hmm. So we we may have to help them tailor it so that they can get the best experience out of their supervisor's experience. Um, so. 
and then and then the students embark on a, a project that typically takes a full year. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you actually talk about it that way, but I think that a lot of students, like, you know, they talk, like some students graduate from our undergrad and they have mm -hmm. friends that go to other institutions sure. and those, you know, they, they talk and they say, well, I'm, I'm doing a graduate degree at X institution and I'm yep. doing a quote unquote thesis, right? Yep. And, and I wanted to make sure that you, I, I, want, I want to make sure you have an opportunity to say, what's the difference between a thesis versus mm -hmm. a terminal project would be, sure. for example. Okay. <laughs> So a lot of schools still call it thesis, mm -hmm. um, even though by our definition, it's not really a thesis, it's a project, it's a final project. Um, and the difference is that those, those kinds of projects don't have the depth of research. I just mentioned that for us, it typically takes a full year, which is three consecutive semesters. Mm -hmm. in, so, in some programs, the, the so-called thesis is one semester. So it's essentially, a, it's, it's, it's more like a studio on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, than a full-blown thesis. In some cases, it might be two semesters where the first semester is devoted entirely to uh, non-design research and sometimes mm -hmm. is actually happening alongside a studio. Mm -hmm. So the students are engaged in a, in a different design exercise and they are doing their research in preparation for thesis. Um, and in those cases, you would have two semesters, the first one, which is the written thesis, and the second one, which is design, which in our mind is a bit problematic because it tends to uncouple the two activities. Right. And part of what we're saying to our students is that design isn't something that simply is the resultant of a different, more traditional set of research exercises. Mm -hmm. Design is part of research. Design informs the research. And part of what happens in our thesis, because of the kind of iterative nature of the thesis that happens over that long duration is that the design process itself helps to generate new research questions. You can't know what questions to ask until you're partway into the design investigation. Um, so that's part of the thinking. So we, we see it as more of a kind of iterative cyclical uh, process. Mm -hmm. So we ask students to start designing very early in the process, um, rather than thinking of design as something that is a resultant of. Well, I, I, if you mind me chiming in on this one, because I think that also students are very much aware of, I mean, our, our grad program has been around for about 13 years now, thereabouts. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of students are familiar to a certain degree of how we've operated uh, thus far. And in, under your watch now, we've kind of shifted um, recently to, to kind of accelerate, right? So we have some students that are interested in doing their masters. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you've done a few things to the program to sorry, not accelerate, but just to make sure people have enough time to do hit certain milestones. Do you want mm -hmm. to comment on that? Sure. I, that wasn't my doing. That was in the works already. So this is something that we've been kind of working on collectively for a while. Um, and the, so, so really what's happened is that when we first launched the program, it was a six semester program. It is now a five semester program. Mm -hmm. And the big, the big change is that what we used to do in the spring semester um, was that we offered a, uh, a condensed studio, like a six-week intensive studio, um, that often included a travel component. Right. What that meant was that students didn't really start their thesis until the following September, so the September of second year. We, the, part, partly from the feedback we got from students and other issues that we saw um, emerging from a series of... Uh, you know, periodic program review exercises and so forth, there was a strong um, desire to take uh, or to reduce the length of the program. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed, it seemed obvious to us after having done the review that the semester that was probably the one that made the most sense to reduce was the, was the travel studio. Mm-hmm. Now, the travel studio, of course, has its own tremendous value, right? We, we have a huge commitment in the department to mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've done, instead of having the travel happen now in the spring, uh, is that travel typically happens in the fall semester and it happens over the reading week. So that mm-hmm. does a couple of things. It makes the whole travel um, component much more accessible to a larger number of students because the duration is reduced, which reduces the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and also um, doesn't, uh, doesn't conflict with maybe other activities that the students need to engage in over that summer term. Um, what it also means though, is that now the thesis begins in May. Mm-hmm. Um, and the intention is that students complete by the following April. Um, so this is the first year that that has been in place. And many students did not finish by April, partly because of the, you know, the culture of the program. It takes some time to, to adapt. But mm-hmm. also, of course, you know, there's the elephant in the room, um, COVID. Yep. Um, which, of course, uh, uh, complicated people's progress. Um, in some cases, there were students who were absolutely reliant on the workshop, um, right. <laughs> whose, whose whole thesis had to kind of be reconceptualized. Um, because they were no longer able to conduct their research through phys- physical fabrication. Mm-hmm. They, they had to convert to, uh, to digital uh, simulation. Um, so in some cases, that really did cause considerable uh, delay to their work. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, stu- the students who did complete uh, in April were typically students who um, were not reliant on those kinds of infrastructures. And so they were able to basically continue their work. Um, and complete on time because they were working primarily in, in drawing format, which mm-hmm. is obviously still possible for them to do. Um, so that's essentially what we've done is we've gone from a six semester program to a five semester program. Okay. And just with, with that in mind, I think that a lot of students also, while I got you on the line here, uh, they're also concerned about two things to get into masters. Obviously, yep. you, you mentioned the grades as well as the portfolio. Yes. So yes. a lot of students always ask about portfolio questions, whether we have a guest from industry and certainly you know, other profs. So now that I got you, yep. I think a good, a good got any tips for people as they <laughs> approach doing a portfolio in general? I mean, not, not for just Ryerson, but in general, to, to get into grad program. Oh, do great work. Oh, come on, man. That is such a, what a prof answer. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, we get a lot of portfolios and there's quite a big range. So mm-hmm. just to give you a sense of the number of applicants, we typically get it in the range of about 300 applicants a year. Um, and that's for approximately 30 spots. Mm-hmm. Um, it's roughly 50-50 and it varies from year to year, but typically it's roughly 50-50 domestic applicants and international applicants. Okay. Um, just to give you some, some context, uh, the portfolios that, so the, the strongest portfolios that we get, um, I'm happy to say that a lot of those are coming from our own undergrads. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, there may be a couple of reasons for that. One is that they, they are maybe a bit more attuned to the culture and expectations of the grad program because they, they see it. They see the work of the grad students, right? Yeah. Um, but there's also, I think, just a very interesting range and balance in the work of our students. Um, we do, because of the nature of our program, we do tend to look for evidence 
of technical proficiency as well, because we know that we won't be teaching them that in the grad program. So if students are coming into our program without that technical proficiency, it's a problem because we can't really deliver it to them in the mm -hmm. grad program. So th that can be a disadvantage for students coming from certain uh, undergrad programs that are not very technically strong. But, but to be clear, we're not asking students to put like entire like working drawing sets. No, in, in the, no, 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 no. But, but we would, you know, typically from our students, we'll see some examples of their work from the comprehensive design studio. Mm -hmm. So I would say that any, any school that is doing a, you know, a, a strong comprehensive design studio in their undergrad, the students who are including that work in their portfolio are demonstrating that capacity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we do get applications that show no evidence of that. Um, and so it becomes very difficult for us because we, we, we have to graduate students from our program that we are confident meet all the requirements of accreditation. Right. Whether they've met them with us or whether they've met them somewhere else in a different undergraduate program. If, if, those, if those requirements have not been met in the undergraduate programs from which they come, mm -hmm. and if, if there are in areas that are not addressed in our grad program, then there's a very, there's a strong likelihood they will not be accepted. Okay, so that's the portfolios. That's good to know. No working drawings from me. That's cool. No, no working but drawings. Uh, and just, I'll just extend that thinking a little bit. So in most cases, what we'd like to see in the portfolio, and this is what I would advise students when they come to me and ask, we want to see their most recent work first, because we want to see what, what they're, you know, where are they, where are they at now? Right. right. So most students will, if, if they're coming from our undergraduate program, for example, they will, they will start with, um, you know, their fourth year studios. Mm -hmm. um, then they will show us their third year comprehensive work. And then some of them choose to go all the way back to first year. Some of them don't. No, they just, you really? Know, oh, yeah. That's digging um, deep, man. That's digging deep. But some of them did really strong work in first year. So, you know, that's, it's not a problem to include that work. I'm just saying, um, you know, when you are putting your portfolio together, you should be very cognizant that it needs to be carefully curated. Okay. Uh, you really want to put your strongest work forward. And, um, and, and for, I would for... say, sorry, I'll, let me just finish my thought. And then, and then work that has been done in practice, people who have been working in offices, uh, they're encouraged to include samples of the work from the office. But we, we of course, know that if you're working in an office, uh, authorship is, is quite complicated. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so they, they are required to make it very clear what their role on the project was. And so, and we also understand, of course, that, you know, we, we, our primary interest is in their, in, in their personal work, um, uh, in, you know, work that we can verify is, is their work as opposed mm -hmm. to the work of a team, um, because in the end, they have to bring their capacities into the program. Um, if they did, if they worked on a wonderful project that someone else designed and all they did was, you know, um, uh, you know, millwork hatch in, you know, yeah. hatch in concrete, uh, you know, the, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, it's important that they be very clear, but, uh, what work is theirs and what work is, is not. Well, I was just going to ask you about the guys coming in from industry. So thanks for, see, see, this is the thing. Like, again, I, 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 the last podcast I, I was recording, it was with another one of the, I, I'd like to call the three wise men in the program. So I was interviewing Colin and now I'm going to, now I'm doing Marco Polo. And again, just to reiterate listeners, uh, these are the guys that if they said something is white when I thought it was black all this time, I would be like, damn, man, I've been wrong. So 
that, that's, that's Marco for you. He's smart and astute. But Marco, you talked about the portfolios. That's good. You talked about a little bit about the program. But can you, just, again, a lot of people are antsy about the other two dimensions to getting in, which would be, of course, grades and yep. statement of intent. So sure. can you just talk about the grades issue? Because a lot of people, you know, with architecture grades, it's kind of hard to get yep. like that A plus average, right? We're not psychology, right? And at the hey, same time- hey. I'm sorry, I'm just saying. Uh, but at the same time, I, I also don't know. Like, listen, I've just came off reading a bunch of statement of attempts that you yeah. told me to read, right? So yeah. I don't know where kids can pick up on how to write a good statement of intent. So help us out, man. <laughs> okay, let, let me address grades first. Yeah. Um, so the minimum requirement for application to the grad program, and this is across all grad programs at Ryerson and most universities, is mm -hmm. a, a 3.0 average. Um, which uh, translates as a, as a B average. Yep. Um, so if you have below a 3.0, your chances of getting in obviously are reduced. They're not absolutely impossible because let's say you've been out of school for a while and your portfolio is very strong. So maybe you weren't the greatest student, but somehow that's been translated into something else through your work experience. We can be a little flexible on the GPA. Mm -hmm. But if you have a below three GPA and everything else is kind of, you know, average, then you, then you, you will not get in. Um, most of the students that are getting in, I would say are more in the kind of 3.5 mm -hmm. and up range, mm -hmm. but that's not to say that you, you know, that there are also a number of people that we do make offers to that are down at the low end of the GPA range, mm -hmm. but they, in that case, they would have a pretty strong portfolio. So just can I just interject on this one, because I think a lot of students are asking because the grades are coming out right now. And, and I, I just rather topical that a lot of students have yeah. to make a decision between taking a credit or, you know, grades sure. and stuff. So yeah. a lot of students are sitting and saying, I got a 2.86. Right? right. So that's not a three. I'm not yeah. a bad student. Yeah. What would you say? Like, I mean, do they have to make a special case and say, hey, Marco, I'm not a three. Can I get looked at or does it automatically get looked at by you or like how's yeah, that? We, we'll still look at a portfolio. Okay. Um, if they send us a hard copy portfolio, that will get looked at. Um, so what, what has to happen in a case like that is that we would have to make a case for it because it's an exception, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but like I say, I think that, that we, would, we would look at those on a case-by-case -case basis. And I would say that if you have a 2.8 and you're just finishing your undergraduate degree mm -hmm. and you have no office, you know, you have no professional experience, Mm -hmm. um, your chances are less than if you had a 2.8 and had been out for a few years and had experience, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so if, if you're, if this is one way to put it, if, if you're not so strong in one area, you should be stronger in others. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a kind of average portfolio, but you're a 4.2 GPA because you're a brainiac mm -hmm. that will help offset the weaker portfolio. Right. If you have a 2.8 because you're not, you know, you, you're, you're not, a strong student in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, you're not necessarily a keener that gets the, the A pluses, but you have a really strong portfolio, um, which is entirely possible, right? There are people yep. who, who can be extremely productive in terms of doing really strong work, but you know, for whatever reason, maybe they, maybe they submitted a bunch of work late, which brought their grade down. Maybe mm -hmm. there are other courses that bring their GPA down, right? Exactly. Um, so all those things we kind of look at on a case by case basis. Uh, I would say if you're down around the 2.5, mm -hmm. don't bother, right? I mean, yeah. that's, just, that's just dipping too low. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but but if you're close to a three and you have other strengths, then you still have a, a there's still a chance. Okay, I just got the email in front of me. So the the question was just they are they're kind of worried and they see the, yeah. the writing on the wall about uh, I still want to say names, but they're they're looking at the writing on the wall and they're realizing that getting a job is tough, right? Sure. So they're graduating, they're going to be graduating, yeah. and they're not quite hitting the three, and they just need to get some kind of assurances. So they're listening with bated breath here just to hear from you. So that's why I just want to raise that. Okay, so again, there's, there's no assurances here. Yep. Um, it's all contingent on the quality of, of their application in general. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, um, we would be looking at, um, well, in the case of Ryerson students, you're, you, we don't require a letter of reference because, mm-hmm. you know, you're an internal applicant. But I would say if you've got a weak, you know, weak GPA, a below three GPA, right. Uh, you better have a strong portfolio. You might want to think about submitting a letter of reference. If, if there is a, you know, if there's someone who will, who will vouch for you. Oh man, um, that just maybe got to do another letter of reference. Thanks, well, Marco. No, no. I'm just saying if, if you are not meeting all those requirements, right, then there, mm-hmm. it's going to take a little extra effort. Okay. Um, remember, you know, like I just said, we, we get 300 applicants for 30 spots. Yeah. We could, we could very easily say everyone below 3.0, we don't even look at. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's one way to start to eliminate those numbers. It's it's if only one in ten are getting in, then you know the the ten the the ten percent that get in are going to be the the people who are at the top of the pile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if 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 you are not if you're not meeting the minimum uh, um, GPA requirement, like I said, you, you better have a very strong portfolio, and and another another way of making a case for yourself. So then, because the thing, sorry, the, the thing to remember. So this is not trivial, the GPA, right? Because in in grad school, and this is true for all grad programs, not just ours, the minimum passing grade is seventy. It's a B. So that's what we're asking you to come in with, right? Yeah. If you if you're not rocking a B coming out of undergrad, how are you going to do it in grad school? Yep. So that's that's the way to think about it. That's actually a really good point because I think a lot of students aren't aware of that grade. Uh, that that cut off for failure, right? That's um, right. Yeah. Um, so so just the the other thing I was getting at though, beyond the grades and, and the portfolio, was of course the statement of intent. And yes. this has been something that every fall when students are thinking about applying for masters, they just yeah. don't know where to go, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not like they post them up on Wikipedia and say like boilerplate template this, right? So how, sure. how do you, what what should be included for at least from your perspective? What should be stated in those things? Okay, that in some ways is the most difficult part of the submission mm-hmm. um, because there isn't a template for this. Um, a lot of these are quite personal. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking for is some clarity, right? Some specificity is good. Uh, you're not held to it in any way. Like if you submit a statement of intent or st- it's actually called a statement of interest. Yep, sorry. If you, su- if you submit a statement of interest and it says, you know, for my thesis, I would like to do X, Y, and Z, and you're quite specific about it. And we like the sound of it. And <laughs> we think that's a good fit for the fact, you know, because if you're, if you're saying, I'm interested in doing something and there's no one on faculty who covers that area, mm-hmm. that's not going to help, right? Right. Um, so you might want to do a little research as to who does what <laughs> on the faculty. Uh, what, you know, if you are a graduate of Ryerson, you should have some sense of the culture of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you take you know if you have something that that we see as a good fit that is clear that isn't really vague and 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 you know uh, trying to cover trying to be all things to all people, um, then that's very helpful. At right. the same time, we we won't hold you to it, right? 
we also expect that over the course of your first year in the undergraduate program, we're going to spin your head around a few times. Um, and you may come out the other end with very different ideas about what you want to spend a year researching as your mm -hmm. thesis. Okay. Some students, what I can tell right away, some students simply go to the website and they see that we have three areas of interest in the program, which is, you know, sustainability, global uh, emerging technologies, global communities, mm -hmm. and we'll get statements of interest to say, I'm interested in sustainability, global communities, and emerging technologies. That doesn't really help us. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be specific. Okay. Um, be clear about what you're in, where your interests lie. Um, you know, we certainly don't expect you to identify a thesis project. Mm -hmm. Some students do, and we know that, you know, the chances of them actually doing that project are not super high. Um, but it's, it's more about giving us some insight into, into your, um, your thinking process, your degree of criticality, you know. Mm -hmm. um, if you submit a statement of interest that basically says, you know, I'm interested in doing a, a house for my uncle, then <laughs> that's not going to get you too far. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, think in terms of I, again, I would say two, two or three issues that you want to think about. First of all, what is the culture of our institution? Mm -hmm. If you're coming from our program, then you have some sense of that. If you're coming from another program, you might want to, you know, inform yourself a bit about yep. what we do here. Cyberstalking. Yeah, you know, it's very easy to go to the website and visit the faculty pages and see what the areas of research are. Mm -hmm. um, if you are, like I said before, if you're proposing an area that no one on faculty has expertise in or interest in, then that's going to be a problem. Um, so there's that. The other is think about what you want to spend a year working on. Mm -hmm. what, what will maintain your, not only your interest, but what is a substantial enough area of investigation to actually, you know, be worth a year's work. Right. Um, and think about the theoretical context of that work, right? So this is a work of graduate scholarship. This mm -hmm. isn't just a design project. You will, you will be spending time doing literature research, you will be investigating what is the current scholarship in my area of interest, which mm -hmm. means doing journal research, possibly talking to people who are engaged in this kind of work. Um, you know, one of the things that this pandemic has been really interesting uh, for me, certainly, is that um, it's, it's made, it's expanded my thinking in terms of who to contact. Um, to, what do you mean? Well, because, you know, Normally, I'm thinking now, specifically now, I'm thinking about um, external critics, for example. Mm -hmm. um, normally, we would be looking for people who could actually come to the school. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a huge budget to bring in guest critics <laughs> from all over the world. So generally, we relied on the local community, which fortunately for us is, is outstanding, right? We have a fantastic uh, professional and academic community in Toronto and region, right? But... What's even better is, you know, if you're on Zoom, you can get people from all over the world. Um, I have found people who have very specific expertise in certain areas that we would not have found locally, um, who are participating as guest critics in some of our reviews. Mm -hmm. um, so with, with the kind of uh, expansiveness, I think, that that brings into our, our way of thinking, I think that, you know, that, that's another area that applicants could be looking at is, uh, who is working in the areas of my interest and why am I not reading their work, <laughs> you know? Um, so that, that if you are, if you, if you want to cast a, a bit of a wider net in terms of, of the kinds of things that you're interested in, um, this will help you put together a stronger statement. And the other thing that that does is we, we will see that you are 
interested enough to actually do some research um, in the preparation of your statement and let us know that you are, are kind of tuned in to, to the larger uh, architectural community. You know, I'm actually wishing that you had told me this before I assessed all of those uh, statements of intent, <laughs> just, just for the record, man. Um, but I, I, I think that, that's, that's a lot to be dwelling on the grad program, but I think we covered all our bases on that. But Marco, I want to jump back to you because you're talking about knowing people's interests. And this is a really good opportunity for students to get a handle of what Marco Polo uh, is okay. all about, right? Lately. So, so I, I think let's just start off, um, you know, I, 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 I I think I skimmed it really quickly, but you were basically representing Canada at the Biennale and, you know, you get off at the Marco Polo airport in Venice. <laughs> True and, enough. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, they laid out the red carpet for you. And <laughs> I wish they had. <laughs> but, but basically, can you tell us what the Biennale is and what you oh, did there? What is the Biennale? Um, wow. I'll, I'll try to be polite. Um, whoa, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> the Biennale is self-described the most important um, international architectural event in the world. And uh, <laughs> I would say that that's still probably true. Um, by definition, a Biennale happens every two years. And the Biennale in Venice has been going since 1890-something, uh, primarily as a visual art Biennale. Mm -hmm. And around 1980, they started doing architecture Biennales. And they started doing them regularly around 2000. Um, so over the last 20 years, uh, the Architecture Biennale has been a regular biennial event. Um, it's, a, it's essentially a, a three-part exhibition. Um, there's a large main show that is curated uh, every year, every, sorry, every Biennale, every, every installment of the Biennale has a new curator. There's, a, there's guest curators. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been, uh, this year, for instance, it's uh, Hashem Sarkis mm -hmm. um, from MIT. Uh, historically, uh, a lot of interesting people have done it. Rem Koolhaas did it, uh, Aaron, Aaron Betsky, uh, Kazuya Sejima, mm -hmm. uh, David Chipperfield, um, the the 2018 one was done by um, the um, the Irish architects. Oh Lord, now I'm blanking out on the name of yeah. the practice. Um, Grafton, and um, so it's it's quite it varies quite a bit from year to year. Um, the the curators show is by invitation, and there's uh, people from all over the world. Um, the second component of the show is what's called the national pavilions. And mm -hmm. so those are selected not by the, not by the curator, but by those are selected by the countries that, that are represented. Mm -hmm. um, and Canada has its own pavilion uh, built in the late fifties. There's only about 40 countries that have their own pavilions, So it's actually quite remarkable that Canada has one. Yeah. Um, but I guess in the late fifties, this was very much part of the, the, um, initiative that came out of the Massey Report, which was very instrumental in promoting Canadian culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, uh, the, the Canadian Pavilion was built. Um, and again, at that time, it was basically to house visual art. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2008, um, my partner, John McMinn, who's a prof at Waterloo, um, he and I had curated an exhibition about uh, sustainable architecture in Canada and its relationship to regionalism. And that was selected to represent Canada at the 2008 Biennale. So we were in the Canadian Pavilion as a national representation. Uh, the third part of the Biennale is something called the collateral events. And those are scattered all over uh, Venice. 
uh, all over the city. So the, the main part of the Biennale happens in what's called the Giardini della Biennale, which is a large public garden um, at the far eastern tip of the city. Um, yep. and, uh, and then the, the collateral events are all over the city. Um, so anyway, that gives you a little bit of context for the Biennale. This year, of course, we don't know if it's going to happen. Um, it was supposed to open at the end of May, and now they're saying it'll open at the end of August, but, you know, it's anybody's guess at this point whether that's going to happen. So, so can you tell us about the actual Biennale uh, work that you did? Because that sure. stemmed from the book that you wrote. Do you want to talk about that while we're talking about your research base? Sure. So, so the book was actually an exhibition catalog. So the, the, the main um, expression of that research ended up as an exhibition. Um, it was called uh, 41 to 66 degrees, which is the 41 is the southernmost um, latitude uh, at which Canada resides. And that's the south mm -hmm. tip of Pelee Island. And 66 degrees, of course, is the Arctic Circle. Canada extends way beyond the Arctic Circle, but the, the vast majority of, of uh, building activity in the country happens between 41 and 66. Um, and uh, when the exhibition was first put together, it was um, uh, supported uh, uh, by uh, Cambridge Galleries, which has an association with the University mm -hmm. of Waterloo. And that was in 2005. In 2008, we, uh, the show was, was um, uh, selected to represent Canada in Venice. And so we basically updated and redesigned the exhibition to suit the Canadian Pavilion, which is highly uh, idiosyncratic. Um, the original show was still touring and continued to tour until 2010. So for five years, it toured about 10 or 11 destinations in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. So at a certain point, we had to show up in Venice and also touring in Canada. Um, the, Venice, the Venice experience was something else, I'll tell you. Um, it, uh, what do you it, mean? <laughs> it nearly killed us. Um, it's, it's <laughs> you know, you, you don't, you don't go to Venice with your B game, right? You, you have to bring your A game uh, to the Biennale. And um, it's a huge amount of work. We only found out in February that we were going to be doing this and the show had to open in August. Um, mm -hmm. for, fortunately, the kind of the thinking work, the, you know, the research, the intellectual work of the show was already largely done. We had to, do, we had to update some of it. So it was mostly an exercise in, in exhibition design. Um, and installation. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the other thing is that, you know, doing anything in Venice is um, extremely expensive. Um, and uh, we had we had very little money. Um, Canada historically has not funded these uh, projects very well. Um, and most people up until very recently right. will tell you that it's quite a strain. Some of some of the um, uh, people who were involved have stories and I won't name any names here, but there's stories of having to, you know, remortgage their houses to <laughs> carry the debt to make it work, you know, just crazy, crazy stuff. But people want to be there, right? It's yeah. a, it's a big stage. Mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. uh, now, now, uh, fortunately, the, the whole system is much better supported. The Canada Council um, mm -hmm. awards uh, uh, a, a grant of $500,000 for the show. At the time that we mm -hmm. did it, the Canada Council grant was 100,000. So that gives you some sense of the change of scope. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition mm-hmm. to in addition to dealing with the exhibition, we had to do fundraising. You know, it's quite an onerous undertaking, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so we did that. That was in 2008, and um, it was a fascinating experience. Obviously, I mean, it was extraordinary place to be. Uh, the Canadian Pavilion is at one end of the park, uh, right next to the Engl- you know the British Pavilion, Germany, France, Japan. Uh, so some pretty heavy hitters. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was very interesting to see some of these other countries that obviously had much better uh, support, much much mm-hmm. greater resources. And it was just interesting to understand how um, architecture fit into their idea of national culture um, and cultural activity and 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 the and the promotion of their culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Canada was a bit of a was a bit of a poor cousin in that respect, right? Um, so, like I said, I think that situation has improved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's come out of the Biennale for, for me personally is that um, I now, um, uh, since 2012, is it, I think, um, every two years, every time there is a Biennale, we have been taking students um, in, uh, in the fall semester mm-hmm. uh, because the, the Biennale typically runs um, through the summer and into to November. Mm-hmm. So over the fall semester reading week, which is always the week of Thanksgiving, we um, we take students over to the to the BNI. Uh, and that's not mandatory, though. It's 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 not mandatory, but I would say that about ninety percent of the of the first year master's students uh, do participate. Okay, typically. So I want to just wind it back a little bit because you know the Biennale is is really a, a kind of apex event for anybody right and and you know you've been able to do one way back in the day but would you say that that's you another really good accomplishment that you got as you said was being the editor of canadian architect do you think that uh one led to the other or was yeah i think everything is kind of connected um the the great benefit of being the editor of canadian architect is understanding the um the architectural culture across the country Um, there's quite a lot of variation, uh, you know, kind of regional, um, interests Mm -hmm. in Canada because it's a, you know, it's an enormous country sparsely populated by, you know, by most standards. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's so large, of course, that there are radically different geographic, uh, climatic and, um, and cultural, uh, differences. Um, the, the position at, at the magazine was was wonderful for me because I, I got to know the the uh, architectural communities across the country mm-hmm. uh, and really start to understand what the different preoccupations were architecturally in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. what the different dynamics were, what the different opportunities were, how you know how the different economies uh, tied into architectural design and production, what areas were more conservative, what areas were more experimental, mm-hmm. uh, what areas valued. Uh, construction, um, you know, high quality construction over, <laughs> uh, you know, over, uh, you know, s- spectacle. Like it was just really interesting to see all those things. And of course, you know, meeting architects from all over the country, mm-hmm. meeting people, uh, architects, academics, uh, students, um, clients often. Um, it was a really interesting exposure to that whole world. And I would say that, and how did it contribute to the Venice thing? Well, certainly it, it gave me contacts with architects all over the country. Mm-hmm. I, was a, I was aware of projects that were either 
happening when I was at the magazine or were in the, you know, in the design stage. So I was more aware of the whole kind of scene across the country. Right. Um, and it also, it also meant that I was interested in pursuing research that really looked at the national picture rather than very specific local uh, mm -hmm. issues. And so in that sense, I would say the project, which was a pan-Canadian project, um, was partly uh, the result of that exposure. Yeah, see, I can't imagine being in that position, both for the Biennale and the editor of the magazine, having to kind of be politically sensitive. Like, I, I would imagine that at some <laughs> point you have to be like, look, man, those guys in Labrador, they really need to get uh, like a building shown because they hadn't had one in the last like decade or something, right? Like, I, I, Well, there's some of that for sure. There's some of that. Um, but you also just tune into the different architectural cultures, right? I mean, you know, when I was at the magazine, I was often looking for outlier projects, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there was a project, again, I won't name the office, but there was a project in Saskatchewan that I was quite interested in, and I kept bugging the architects to send me some images. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they never really kind of got around to it. They weren't that interested. Um, you know, I had snapshots, but there was no professional photography. So in the end, I couldn't publish it. I didn't have published publication quality materials. You know, and then there, of course, there's other offices and those offices mostly in places like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, right. where, you know, you get on the phone and by, by the time you hung up the phone, there was a package, you know, coming in from, <laughs> from a courier with glossy images. You know, it's just a different machinery. Um, and so you, you start to realize that there, is, there isn't an architectural culture in Canada. There are many. Um, and they vary from city to city, but mostly they vary from city to small town. Okay. Um, and another thing that, of course, is a, is a huge issue in Canadian practice, and this is something that um, architects can often be quite unhappy about. Um, you know, a smaller city, when it has a very significant uh, prestigious project, will almost always go to a big city architect. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you are in uh, you know, I'm just going to pick a city, you know, a smaller city at random here. Let's say you're in, you know, Medicine Hat. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, you, the, as soon as there's an important project, it's going to go to someone in Vancouver or Toronto, um, you know, maybe Calgary, maybe there's someone in Calgary who'll partner with someone from Toronto. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not dissimilar to, you know, when, when in Toronto, you'll, your architects complain, because you got some guy from London or New York, right, mm -hmm. to do yeah. a prestigious project. So there's a kind of there's a kind of pecking order, I guess, that that, <laughs> that happens. Um, but there are quite distinct architectural cultures in different parts of the country mm. as a so, result of that. So now that we've just kind of covered everything, like what what would you say is if if I were a prospective master student, right, yeah. um, and I was looking at Marco Polo, what would I say uh, his current research would be? Okay, um, interesting. I just started a project. It's a very big, again, pan-Canadian project. Um, it's headed by uh, Jean-Pierre Chupin, who's at the University of Montreal. And um, he's, uh, you may be familiar with the project at uh, UDM, which was the, um, you know, the huge database they built of, of Canadian competitions. Oh, yep, yes, yes, yes. Um, well, now, now we've got a team together uh, that's looking at awards. And one of the things that we're trying to do, and this is, you know, this is almost like an impossible task, but we're trying to understand what constitutes excellence in architecture. <laughs> um, and one of the ways we want to do that is by looking at awards programs and seeing how that has been represented, you know, mm -hmm. because all of them 
say awards of excellence so they they must be excellent right mm-hmm. so anyway it's a, it's a really interesting exercise so far it's, we're at the very very early stages we've been meeting by zoom of course um, mm-hmm. and there have been some very interesting discussions about this I, um, but it's quite exciting because i think that what we're trying to do is you know it's not something that can be quantified but certainly we're trying to bring some kind of rigorous analysis to the understanding of what it is that we value in architecture Mm-hmm. Um, what makes some what makes architecture good? Uh, why do certain projects get elevated uh, and held up as examples? What is it about those projects? I think any of us who have sat on juries, it's it's one of those things where you know you kind of say, well, I don't know what excellence is. I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to get beyond that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's that's a big part. That's essentially the the project I'm embarking on now. Wow, that's that's pretty intensive, and I don't even like. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people would be interested in seeing what the findings would be. Uh, yeah, I think well, that's a nebulous, all, nebulous territory. Very nebulous, and you know, if, if all goes well and all our all our funding comes through, we're you know, this is a multi-year project. Hmm. So, as we conclude, because I've taken a lot of you know Marco's time, but I, I have a couple of quick questions, rapid fire. So, you were a student once. You were. I was. Yeah, back and and I was doing the accreditation way back, and I had a fun fun of viewing Marco's old stomping grounds in UBC. Oh, yeah. uh, the studio buildings, uh, just for the record, let me paint a picture. It's like living in Farnsworth house with glass windows that are louvers. Uh, so you freeze all the time. Well, no, no, um, you, you freeze on the north side. You fry in the, on the yes, south. The greenhouse, yes. Because and, why, why would you design the north facade differently from the south? Exactly, exactly. And then, of course, there is an actual bar in the, uh, like a legit, guys, I'm not doing There's like a, like a keg and everything. A keg, which, I, keg. which I used to run. I was the keeper of the bar for a while. Uh, yeah. So like, just to put things in perspective, Marco, you were a kid once, you know, mm. we're all old now. So yeah. got any good stories about you as a student so that the kids can kind of understand that Marco is accessible and cool. Oh, boy. Uh, or I mean, and I'm also going to flip it back and say, do you have any good stories? Cause you've taught for, you know, a couple of decades now. So got any good stories about the kids too? Okay. Let me think about that. Cause I mean, when I was a student, the, the culture of architecture school is very different. It was much more kind of rough and tumble. Uh, we used to say that, you know, if you left a crit and nobody cried, it wasn't really a crit. Um, and I would say things have definitely toned down. My, my, my most dramatic memory of that was um, actually seeing a prof and a student get into a physical fight. Um, a student was working on a drawing. This was already kind of late at night. It was a night before a deadline. The student was at, at uh, his uh, drawing board. And he was, he was finishing his final drawings and he was drawing in ink. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who, you know, <laughs> remember ink, uh, he, he was doing an ink, an ink drawing. Uh, prof came in and, who'd had a few too many down at the faculty club. <laughs> and um, he went up to this guy who was drawing and he said, you can't think in ink because he was, he was a pencil guy. You know, this is the, these are the fights we That's would have. Fight. Yeah, exactly. Pencil versus pen. Um, and the student ignored him and he got more belligerent and said, you can't think in ink. And he started ripping the drawing. Like tearing and it off the board? Tearing, it, like off ripping... the, tearing it off the board. Because it was mylar, hard to tear, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, anyway, the student lost it. He lunged across the, the drawing board and grabbed the prof by the, by the shirt. And they started tussling and a whole bunch of students pulled them apart. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking now if anything like that happened, um, you know, goodbye academic career. 
Yep. That's, that's, <laughs> so, HR. that's HR on you. <laughs> so interesting. I mean, it was a much more, it was a much wilder kind of environment. Um, and literally, you know, I would see, I, I remember going to reviews and I remember a prof, this was in a, actually, this was a thesis review. Oh, great. Um, and it was actually my, the same prof who was my supervisor. Um, and he was, he was at the presentation of one of his other students that he was supervising and the student made a, made his presentation. And obviously there had been a lot of tension between these two and the prof kind of started the crit by saying, he said the student's name, you know, and they said, you know, so-and-so, you are such an app. Oh, PG-13 you know, Marvel, so, <laughs> Well, just, it's, you know, yeah. this was the environment. So uh, I'm just saying, you know, architectural education has always been very kind of um, dramatic, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this whole idea of the, the culture of the studio and the late nights and the exhaustion and the frayed nerves, that's always been part of the experience. And I would say that now things are much better. We actually, we actually talk about things like student mental health and how can we support it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my impression from when I was a student was if you talked about student mental health was how can we push them to the brink? Yep. Um, so it was a very different kind of environment. Um, stories from studio now. Yeah, oh, like, like come on, man. Teaching. Yeah, because remember, you and I are both banned from te- from doing reviews at certain institutions. Remember? Oh, so, oh that, yeah. Yeah, so, I just, so like, the- <laughs> no one believes us when I say that. But it's like, people, see, the thing is, I say that and people go, yeah, yeah, Vince, I can see you doing it. But Marco? And I'm like, no, no, yeah. he, he got it. It was the same day or same week. I think we both got banned in the same place. Oh, maybe. And, and, maybe. And, and the thing was, I was told that you got banned before me. So I was like, hey. Oh, you're pretty good, man. Well, I thought it was pretty innocuous, but uh, at an institution that, that will not be named, um, I actually have been asked back, but I think it was, it was only because the person who invited me didn't know better. Mm. Um, but the, uh, I was reviewing, uh, thesis projects at an institution that will not be named. And I spent the morning listening to all these projects. And then my reaction to the students was, um, at what point did you lose interest in architecture? Um, yeah. I've inside not, voice, Marco, I, inside I, voice. I've not been asked back. Um, so anyway, that was, to me, that seemed pretty innocuous, but uh, you're right. That did get me banned. Um, what else can I, I, you know, it's all, it's all just one big. I'll, 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 remind you, I'll remind you of one of my first experiences reviewing with Marco. It was like okay. the old program, the old program had a thesis in fourth year, right? And it's based on a whole theme across the entire uh, fourth year, right? So the, that year, the theme was the Silk Road, right? Do you remember that? I remember that. I don't remember the event, but I remember the thesis. Yeah, I remember so, that that year. Yeah. yeah. So I was sitting there and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm paired up with uh, me, you, and I think it was um, Phil, uh, Gao Hastings, right? It was, it was with Hastings, right? And uh, we, were, okay. we were there yeah. doing reviews. And uh, this, so of course, the idea was that they had to deal with conflict in some way, right? Along the Silk Road. Okay. Or some sort of like, you know, whatever, whatever permutation of conflict. It didn't have to be like war. It could have been like, you know, mental health or whatever, like various levels of conflict. So this kid starts talking about this situation called uh, Hikamori. Remember this? Where it's basically oh, okay. guys, guys that are shut-ins that kind of like play video games all day. and live in their cells. Yeah, the, yeah, okay. God, man, Marco, you get my ass in trouble again. So, yeah, so this kid's presenting all this stuff and saying, oh, in Japan, they only play video games and stuff. And of course, so I'm sitting there going, I don't get this, I don't get this. And then at one point, you just go, I don't get what's going on here. And you can tell, Marco has a tell, just for everyone who's listening. If he's in a review with you and he starts breathing heavily, you know he's going to lose it, right? But he's just trying to be nice. The second thing is, I'm, I'm hearing this guy breathing, like, I'm like, hey, I didn't know Marco had like asthma, right? The second thing, 
is that I just go, look, wait, your site is in Japan, right? And he's like, yeah. And of course, the kid, the kid has been working for the project, like, what, four months at least? Yeah. So I'm like, at what point did you ever look at the Silk Road and just go, hey, yeah, sure, they got, you know, Asian people, slanty eyes and things. I get that. But you know that Japan's an island. I don't, like, I don't know. Like, at some point, you must have done some research and realized the Silk Road. And I said, hey, and I got Marco Polo here to tell you that Japan's not on the Silk Road. And you just kind of looked at me and just said, why'd you throw it on me? And that was my Marco Polo first review story. Oh, well, that's, that's also pretty innocuous. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't. I can't think of any uh, any really juicy stories to share that I can share. Um, yeah, I, you know. See, the thing is, I always leave it to Marco to be so eloquent and polite. Like, honestly, man, you're, you're good at this. But you, come on, you got to have some story. No, no, seriously, I'm trying to think whether there was a kind of, I, I don't know if I'm just better. kind of, whether I'm just kind of, uh, you know, suppressing memories or um, just kind of drawing a blank here. I don't know, man. I'm sorry, mate. No, it's okay. But I'm, I'm just so used to Marco being like all kind of nice guy. Not like, not like super affable nice guy, but he's like a good guy. And then, <laughs> not too nice. Yeah, not too nice. But, but like, you know, sometimes if, if things aren't going his way, he'll just up and just be like, you call it straight. You're like, you know, I, you don't say why you got to be like jerk, but you, you have in some, whether it's a student or a faculty member, and even to me, it'll just be like, what? Do you know what you just said? Like, yeah, you'll just well, say straight up. And I'll be like, no, what, what, what did I say? It's like, you, you can't say that. That's what I like about you, Marco. And even when we're not, when you're not chastising me for saying something inappropriate, I also like the fact that, and I mentioned this a couple of times, Marco, if, if you guys want to know, like if you want, Marco, your second job, if you wanted to like, you know, if the prof thing don't work for you, uh, you could get like a little side gig, a side hustle doing eulogies because Marco, when he says something like, we had a meeting, remember the other day, it was like we had a meeting with the grad students and we we're talking about the prospects of career choices. Oh, right, yes. And, and then suddenly Marco just like, you know, waxes political, doesn't even say an um or an ah, doesn't stumble. And he starts chronicling the history of, I, I think you started with the, the, the Black Death. Then you started talking about, um, you know, you started <laughs> I don't think about, I went back no, that no, far. You know, Spanish flu. And yeah, then I you started about talk, that. Yeah. And then you started talking about all this and he's like, you know, like, and this too will pass. And I was like, wow, good inspiration. And of course it came back to, you needed a guy that knew his history and all the political and social and cultural things coming together to really get that reassurance. So I thought that was a pretty good thing to like make a sobering statement, but make it sound like a lecture, man. Nice way to bring it all the way back to the beginning. Hey. Why do you need to study history? Hey, I thought that one through. There you go. Why, see, when you, when you have to draw yeah. attention to segue, Mark, no, 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 I mean, that, you ruined listen, every single thing I do, man. Honestly. I, I, that's my goal in life. Yes, I know. I know. Um, but I'm just thinking, you know, it's, it's an attention span thing. These poor kids have been listening if they're still there for over an hour. So you got to kind of, you got to tie it up again at the end. Fine, man. See, fine. The sermon's over. If you guys want to follow through, I'll put up some stuff on Marco, both his Biennale work, his book, and also his profile in the show notes. But uh, Marco, thanks for taking the time out. I know you got tons of other things to do, especially at this time of year when the master's heating up so thanks um i'm certain the kids appreciate you taking the time especially to okay. play the issues about masters thank no you very problem much, at all yep thanks vince